This morning, if you've got your Bibles, we'll be starting today in Psalm chapter 85. And this morning, I've entitled our message, Revive Us Again. I think that for many of us, uh, we've all certainly by now heard of the things going on at Asbury University as among other college campuses. And I think that for us today, it would be important to understand truly what is revival? What does it mean? Where does it come from? And so it's worth noting from the very beginning of all of this that when we look to the scriptures, there is not a singular event throughout scripture that is labeled as a quote-unquote revival. Um, Not even Pentecost, which we'll talk about later today, or any of these events, the author did not simply label it as a revival. While we would certainly look at the events that took place or the message that was preached or the response to that message, we could certainly today say, well, there was a revival that happened here, but this word is never used. Um, And I think that we also should note that today there are kind of different parts or what some would even label as different kinds of revival. Um, There's also what we would call renewal. Um, If you remember just a couple years ago, we had a renewal service here at this church. Um, And I think that when we're looking at this, we have to really ask these questions of, you know, what are these things and uh, what kind of comprises them? What makes them up? And so I think today it would be important to first define the two of what really comes with a revival and what comes with what we may call a renewal. Uh, There's a very excellent definition that I found from uh, Dr. Nathan Finn. He was from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. It may be a little small out there for you, but that's okay if you can't read it. I will read it to you. He says, for my part, I want to make a distinction between revival and renewal, though they may often coincide. Revival is a temporary season of extraordinary spiritual blessing and empowerment. God brings revival when and where he chooses. Revival is normally not limited to a single church or even denomination, though it often begins among a single church. We should pray for revival because we want the Lord to do more through our churches than we can even begin to imagine. Renewal comes about when an individual, a church, or a group of churches repents of sin and returns to their first love. Revival almost always leads to renewal, but renewal can happen absent of revival. Simply through humbly responding to the ordinary means of grace, especially the preaching of the word. And so when we're looking at these things, revival is really a influx of sort of a spiritual boldness, an influx of Uh, really people coming and repenting and doing all of these things, which are great things. This is what we often think of when we look at events like the Great Awakening. Um, You had many sermons going on during that time by uh, preachers such as Jonathan Edwards, uh, who was preaching very, very, as you can imagine, uh, helpful uh, self-improvement sermons such as Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, You can imagine that people left there feeling very joyous. Um, (laughs) But these were the types of sermons that we saw being preached during that time. And of course, uh, sermons from John Wesley there in what most would define as the Second Great Awakening. And so uh, we've seen many times throughout history where there's really been revivals. 
And so today I want to really look at the first piece of scripture here in Psalm chapter 85. Uh, for many of us, though it is not in the scripture itself, sometimes we have those little headings there in our Bibles. And I know for mine there on Psalm chapter 85, it just flat out says, revive us again. And there we'll start in verse 1. The psalmist writes, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath and you turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. And as I look through many commentaries and many notes on this passage, um, this is very much a hard psalm to pinpoint exactly when it happened. Uh, it's hard to describe or figure out the timeline here of where Israel was at. And I think that, you know, many times it can be difficult because as we look through Israel's history, there was often many times where they made mistakes and God's anger was kindled and, you know, these things had to happen. And so, but we see here such a wonderful and simple prayer that is coming about asking for revival. And we see a few things in here. It recognizes, first of all, that revival is not man-made. I can't just force revival to happen. I can buy the biggest tent I can find and go out in the middle of the woods and, you know, set it up and invite everybody in the city. But I ultimately can't bring that change. Only God can bring that. And yet we also see that one may and should pray for revival and to not only do that but to pray with a godly expectation pray that God will see it to come about and we also see from this here from the context when we are to pray for this if we look at verses 1 through 3 we see that we should pray for revival when we remember the great things that God has done in the past those things should be an encouragement to us I think that too often you get many younger preachers who take over at a church and maybe that church has been around for decades and, you know, they almost look to the past as if it's something to, you know, be ashamed of or maybe they're trying to look at it that way because they're so, you know, they have such a pride and they want to just do well for the Lord today. But I think that looking at the past should bring us encouragement. There's nothing wrong with looking to a time when the church was booming, when the church was doing well. There's no shame in that. That should cause us when we are not in a season where we see that great growth, where we see that great booming thing happening in the church, we should look back on those times and we should be praying that we would see that again in our church. And then we see there in verses 4 and 5, we see that there is a point where we should pray for revival when we sense to be under some sort of divine displeasure or there's an evident lack of a blessing within the church. And so here we see that there are times that God will be frustrated with the church. We know that to be true. 
We see that all throughout the very beginning of the book of Revelation. We see throughout the book of Revelation as there's letters written to these churches. And as we'll talk about later, only two of them, there was, no, there was something that could be found that was incorrect within the church, that needed improvement. There's only two churches out of the seven. It's not a very good statistic. I know I love my statistics, I love my numbers, I didn't run that number unfortunately, but I can tell you that's not a very good statistic. <laughs> and so, when we look at these things, it should cause us to really ponder for a moment and pray for an extended period of time, pray fervently that we would get out of this area. He says there, restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. And that question that he asks there in verse 6, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? And so there comes a point where we have to look forward to this. We ought to look forward to this and say, God, we just want to rejoice again in you. And that's our prayer. And we see again, almost who, who we could pray for. In praying for a revival, it would be important to pray for the pastor of that church. Ask God to personally revive him, to strengthen him against the temptation and discouragement that comes about. To fill him with faith and ask God to bless the pastor's work with great spiritual power. I know, and we've talked about this many a times, that I'm so glad to have Pastor Craig here. There are many pastors who really delegate things or they make new committees for things to get done or they make new teams to go out and do work, but it really fills me with a sense of joy and a sense of compassion for our pastor when I see how hard he truly labors. And anyone that's really spent time with Pastor Craig or talked with him, you know the amount of labor and the work that he's willing to do. And so this is why when we are praying for revival, it shouldn't just be for the community, but those that are in the leadership. Because there is very hard times and hard seasons that when you're going through those valleys and there's not that big boom anymore, that it can be very discouraging. And there can be times where there can almost be a temptation to give up to sort of throw in the towel and so we must pray for those that are in leadership that they'll continue on and that God will see not only this church revived but to see their faith revived as well and so this prayer exudes the truth that it is God and he alone that brings revival if we have any hope for lives to be changed in this community if we have any hope for our lives, ourselves, to be changed, it would be that God, the Holy Spirit, would bring conviction and new life. And so with these distinctions in place, I think it would be important to go to the two easiest places in all of Scripture to look at and point to and say, well, most certainly a revival happened there. We'll turn first to possibly the biggest revival that we see and most outlandish, some might say, revival that we see there in Jonah. If you'll turn to Jonah chapter 3, we see here in this passage as Jonah has been commanded to go to the city of Nineveh. And anybody who's ever been in a Sunday school class discussing this, you know that is not what originally happens. 
So he goes the opposite direction. As far as he could possibly go before the Lord sent the storm and he, they casted lots to see who was to blame and the blame fell on Jonah and he asked them to cast him into the sea and the storm went away and the large fish swallows him up. Of course, Jonah's deep concerning prayer for his own safety and realizing his own sin there in chapter 2. And then finally, we see at the end of chapter 2 that he's vomited out of this fish onto dry land. And then in Jonah chapter 3, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Noah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city and going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, and from the greatest of them to the least of them. And so we see here from even just a small message. Jonah is sent with a very simple message that God is upset with their sin and that if they do not repent, God will destroy their town, this great city. And this is the message that Jonah brings. And we see from this a great turnaround in this city. For those of you that were here when Pastor Craig did a sermon series through the book of Jonah. You know just how wicked the people of Nineveh truly were. These people were fiercely savage in their warfare and the torture that they would inflict upon people. And yet here when this very simple message from God comes across, we see such great repentance. Even there in verse 5 saying, from the greatest of them to the least of them. Going forward in verse 6, even just a little bit, it says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. This is a very typical thing that we see in the Old Testament. When we see somebody repenting, they, we might hear that they repent in sackcloth and ashes or fast in sackcloth and ashes. And that sackcloth you could think of almost like a burlap sack of this is almost the clothing that they've put on. And you can imagine the discomfort that would come from that and, you know, the itchiness and all of these things of just being uncomfortable. And yet it was all just sort of a humbling experience. And we see that this whole city repents. And as was pointed out, and as we know from Scripture, this does not last forever. The city eventually sort of rounds back to their wicked ways, but for this time, we see this great move of God come through this city. And it's a great thing to see. The only person in this story who's upset to see this is Jonah. Jonah, who was more inclined and more desired to see this city be destroyed and in his mind kind of see them get their just desserts. And as we were just talking about in our Sunday school class, that 
Um, you know, this really was not to be understood by Jonah because these people are Gentiles. They aren't of Jewish descent. And so for him, it's very curious to him of why God would want to see these people repent. And yet we see God's heart there in that very final portion where as this plan has come up, as Jonah's sitting on top of his hill and looking down and just waiting for the destruction to happen, and that plant gets destroyed by God's providence. And as he becomes angry about this plant, God looks at him and says, Well, is it more right for you to be mad that your little plant that I gave you is gone than the fact that I just spared all of these people? And that's kind of how this book ends with us looking at ourselves and saying, shouldn't we desire to see our enemies repent? Even people that we may not think deserve repentance, wouldn't it be great to see them repent? And I think that when it comes to revivals, a lot of the times these things aren't thought about. That for us to see somebody that would walk into our church one day that has hurt us deeply in the past or we have some past grievance against, and what our response would be is if they would attend that and we would see them be saved. This shouldn't bring us frustration. This shouldn't bring us anger at God, but it should bring us great joy and it should bring us great delight. And so as we see here, we see this great repentance that comes from this very small message. In fact, as goofy as we may see it, we just see how desperate they were to be forgiven by God. If you look with me there back in Jonah chapter 3 verse 7, this is the king speaking. It says, And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way from the violence that is in his hands. And why do we look at this and think that this might be silly? Well, just imagine you come home and you're just so on fire for God. We, many of us can remember when we were first saved, that sort of fervent feeling that we had of, I'm just going to go out and do it for the Lord, and I have such a desire to serve Him. Well, Nineveh had such a desire that not only were the men fasting, but the animals were fasting. If I were to come home and say, honey, it's time to fast, and we're not giving Nora a lick of water, and we're not giving her a bite to eat, she'd look at me like I was crazy. And not only were they fasting, but we see that they put the animals in sackcloth as well. You can imagine any visitor that may have the nerve to travel through the once terrifying Nineveh and see all their cows dressed up in sackcloth, you would look at them and say, what in the world is going on here? And yet this was the desire that they had, and why was that? In verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This is a great move of God to bring these people to repentance. People that were so far from God. People that did so many sinful things. And yet God desired to see them be saved. And then we can go to the book of Acts. And we truly see one of the most widespread and first thoughts possibly as far as revivals go. There in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. 
to fill in if it's been a while since you've read through the book of Acts. Of course, it begins with Christ's ascension. And he asks the apostles to go and wait for a little while for the Holy Spirit to come. We see this wind come through, and this is the Holy Spirit rushing in. And we see that the, their tongues are on fire, and they're going out, and they're speaking in foreign languages. No doubt proclaiming what they already know about to be true about Christ to all these men who are gathered here in their own native tongue. And then as they begin to sort of mock and they begin to sort of jest with them, Peter begins this sermon there at Pentecost. And he begins this sermon first by referencing the book of Joel. And as he's referencing the book of Joel, he's going through and declaring that these things are not foolishness. These men aren't drunk as you suppose. And he's showing that what God has prophesied is now coming to place. And after this, he really shifts his focus in this sermon. There in verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So I want to pause here for just a moment. As Peter is delivering this sermon, he's already defended in that first portion of chapter 2, starting in verse 14. He's defended what they're seeing and hearing. He's saying this isn't just foolishness, this isn't just craziness that you're seeing going on. You're seeing prophecy from God be fulfilled. And then as he turns his attention to speak on who Christ is, David begins to reference the fact that David has so often talked about the Lord. 
And who is he talking about? Because many of these people would have seen David as this patriarchal figure to possibly be the fulfillment of all of this. And yet, Peter's saying that's not true. He's making the case here that no, it is not David. If you look there in verse 29, he states very plainly, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. He's saying it couldn't have been David. He died, and he's still dead, and his tomb's still there, and the body's still there. And they're making the case to show that, look at Jesus, this person whom you all crucified, who you all allowed and gave the verdict and gave over these lawless people to be crucified. This is the person who is the Christ. And he goes on and he finishes this in verse 36 by saying, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Throughout this, we see time and time again, Peter doesn't let them off the hook. Their sins are well known to them. Peter makes sure they know that you are the ones who called for the Christ to be crucified. You are the ones who wanted to see him dead. And yet he's not remained dead. How great that is to see there. Back in verse 24 where it says, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Attesting to the godly nature of Jesus that he couldn't remain in the state from which he died. He couldn't remain that way. Death had no hold on Jesus. And so as these men hear this message brought to them, we see there in verses 36 and 37, as he once again, he says, the climactic ending of all this, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? From the preaching of this great message from God, we see so many of these men. The Bible says they're pierced or they're cut to the heart. Not from a simple worldly level of sadness, not from a worldly guilt, knowing what they have done, but truly knowing the sins that they have committed. And as Peter has then said, it is only by calling upon the name of the Lord, as he says there in Joel. And he's just made clear that Christ is the Lord. So imagine the level of humility that would have to come from these men, who just a month and a half or so ago have called for his crucifixion, now being told, but that is the same person on whose name you have to call on to be saved. Because he is the Lord. He is Christ. And they're cut to the heart when they hear this. And they say, well, what do we do? There comes action with this repentance. 
there's action. They say, well, what do we need to do then? I, I have this, you know, my heart's torn. I realize the sin that I've done, and I need to know what I need to do to fix this. And of course, Peter goes on and he says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And we see there in verse 41 the results of this message. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And so not only do we see this great revival here at Pentecost, we see that once again this repentance does not stop, it does not cease. When we're called to repent and believe, this is most certainly not a past tense thing. It is not once you have repented and believed, but this is something that should be going on throughout the believer's entire lives. And their lives change, as we see through there in verses 42 to 47. And if we were to look there after we see the godly lives, the change that's come in their lives, we see in verse 47 that they are praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So once again, when we see this event, that we would look at that and say, well, there's a revival happening here. Look at all these people who are coming to a saving knowledge of God. And yet the consistency here is there's a message that's being preached. Revival can't happen unless God's message is preached and preached clearly. And so as we're moving through all of this, we see that also from this repentance there should be a change. In Nineveh, they fast and they pray. Here in Acts, we see all the different things they were doing. They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They're breaking bread with one another. They're praying together. They're doing all these things. They sell their possessions and give all that the church may need. And so as we see all of these things happening... It's very easy for us to look at this and say, God, that is what I want. This is what I would love to see happen. Now, although it is right for us to pray for revival, we must also go at it with the right heart. The goal of seeing people saved is not to have the biggest and greatest church. That's not why God chose to save 3,000 people. It wasn't so there would be one central big old church right there. But, as we see all throughout the rest of the New Testament, the church spreads out as people go back to their hometowns. We see these new churches coming up. And these new churches don't always do well either. <laughs> Almost immediately, we see the Apostle Paul come through who has to write letters to them. And he says, you guys are doing this, and this is great, but you guys are also doing this, and this is not so great. I remember when 
I was working for the credit union when we would have people that applied for different loans and things like that. It was never just, well, you know, even if we're going to deny them, we can't just beat them over the head. And the reason why we're not giving them the loan, we've got to say something good about them. And so it's almost like we see this all throughout the epistles and even there in the book of Revelation with the letters, there was always at least one good thing there. You know, you guys are really doing this and this is great. We also have to address the problems that are going on here. And that leads us to really the question that we have for the church today. When we look at what was going on in Asbury, so many times we see that this was a Christian college, which there's nothing wrong with Christian college. But in Nineveh, we see most certainly not a God-loving, God-fearing crowd and audience that was being preached to. Most certainly, there in Acts at Pentecost, these people were not Christians. They were not believers. They had really no former knowledge other than that Jesus from Nazareth was somebody that we killed a few months ago. And so there's no Christian basis there. And so these events are something that start from the ground up. And what we see going on there is great. But what we may also really be seeing from there is not simply just revival in and of itself, but we're seeing renewal. People who have already made a proclamation of faith, they've already been saved, and they're realizing how far off they've gone from where they should be. And today, just in a way of sort of ending today, I think it would be appropriate also to look at one of the very easy cases to see renewal here. And that would be found there in the book of Revelation in chapter 2. This very first church, this church of Ephesus, is the first church that receives this letter or John is commanded to write a letter to. And these are the words of Jesus. He says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, Write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, that you hate the word, the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Here in the church of Ephesus, we see from the very beginning something that they're doing that is good. There in verse 2, Jesus is saying to them, I know your works. You're toiling and you're patiently enduring these things that are happening. And he says you cannot bear with those who are evil. He's 
fulfilling, and this would probably be good for John, who wrote in his own epistle there in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So this is probably almost delightful for John to hear. You know, at least they are heeding these words that, you know, they may or may not have even heard yet. At least they are making sure that when somebody comes in that, you know, something doesn't seem right, doesn't smell right, they are quick to really test those things. They're quick to look and see whether or not this person is a true or false prophet or false apostle in this case. He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. They've got good endurance, which is a great thing for a church to have. Because there are many times throughout a church's long history in which it may take a few beatings. There may be things that happen that bring harm to the church. But when it waits through those things with endurance, it's a blessing to see. But then we see in verse 4, he says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And he says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. So when we look at this, we would think to ourselves, Well, what is this? first love that they've fallen from. And we could really cross this with knowing that the love that we would first have would be from possibly those great commandments. To love God first with all our heart, soul, and mind. And the second, just like it, to love our neighbor as ourselves. So these most certainly are probably what John is referring to. When he's saying, you guys are doing great, you guys are enduring, getting a little calloused here. You're getting a little lacking in love. You're just sort of going through the motions at this point. You're very smart. You're very intelligent. You clearly understand and can see things that some churches can't. But if we're doing these things without love, we're in a bad spot. And here's what Jesus then commands him after. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Tells them to repent and do the works you did at first. So we see a second thing that needs to change here. They need to go back to doing the works you did at first or doing the first works. And so we could look at what are those first works, not only for them, but for us. And those questions that could be asked when we're asking what are those first works is, you know, you remember how much time you used to spend in His Word? Do you remember how much time you used to spend reading Scripture and pouring over it? Don't you remember how long and how compassionate your prayers used to be? Don't you remember the joy that you used to have in gathering with believers and coming together with other Christians? Don't you remember how excited you used to be when you would have a chance to tell somebody about Jesus? And these are the works that they've fallen from. These are the works that they're no longer doing here in Ephesus. And if we're being honest, there are times in our lives, and maybe even today, where we're in that exact same boat. Sure, I show up to church, but... I've really got no joy and passion to be here. You know, I'm kind of just lip-syncing along. They sing loud enough. There's three guys up there now. Surely they're going to drown me out anyways. 
yeah, I'm reading through scripture, but, you know, I might just quickly look through it just so I can get back to what I was doing. You know, I felt a little bit of conviction. I read for a little bit, and I you know, read enough to kind of calm that down, and then I got back to what I was really wanting to do. You know, we get in these places where we've not only lost our first love, but because we've lost our first love, we've stopped doing the works that we were doing before. We stop laboring the way we're called to labor. And this is a serious charge that Jesus is bringing. Look there at the second part of verse 5. Actually, we'll go from the very beginning of verse 5 there in chapter 2. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, if you don't do these things, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. To reference this back so you're not thinking that Jesus is going to cut the lights off in the church and you think that's all this means. When we look at chapter 1, verse 20, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Jesus is saying, if we don't, if you all don't repent and go back to where you know you ought to be, where I am telling you you ought to be doing the things you know you ought to be doing and loving God first and loving all those around you, Jesus has made it very clear. Jesus here is making a firm statement. This is my church, not yours. And if you won't take the care, if you won't do the work that's needed to be done, I can close those doors unless you repent. This is a very serious charge that God's brought. And it should cause us to think on our own lives, on where we're at. Are we still so devoted to that first love that we still find joy and we find ourselves constantly doing these same works? Or have we become lazy? Have we become callous? Have we become just unaware of how far we've truly gone from where we first were? And I think for many of us, as we look at our own lives, for those of us that have made a profession of faith, the easiest part, just as he says here, think back to where you first were. Think back to when you first made that decision. Is your love still as fervent? Are you still as willing to go out and do those things that you know you need to be doing? We may find it difficult for us at times to put a finger on what is wrong with a church, what is wrong with us, but it's not so hidden from the sight of Christ. We have to be honest with ourselves. We must be serious about our spiritual condition. And maybe we have left those things. Maybe you've just been going through the motions at church. Maybe you've just been going through the motions in your faith. Today, we ought to pray earnestly, if that is you, that God would renew your passion. That God would rekindle that fire within us. And that we would leave here with a passion and a desire to restore whatever aspect of that we're lacking in. 
And maybe this morning you've realized that you have never made this decision. You don't even think you've taken the first step in all of this. But you've heard the truth that was preached by these great men that Christ is Lord and He is our only chance for salvation. If you have heard these things and God has so, just as He did there at Pentecost, cut at your heart. And you don't know where you would spend eternity if you were to not change all of this. Just as He quoted there that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Don't leave here today not knowing. There are many times that we would make an excuse or some reason that we would not come forward and make this decision. I promise you, that is the greatest, most important decision that we could ever make. We ought not care what anybody thinks. We ought not care what anybody may say. But we must have a desire to see ourselves made new. And so our prayer as a church is to see this entire church to be renewed and go boldly into the community preaching the gospel, going into our workplaces and having a desire to not only tell them the gospel, but to live as we know we ought to. To cut out the sin that we know we're committing. To go to our neighbors and what a change it can bring when we stop butting heads with our neighbors that we can't get along with all the time. And we instead choose to show them love and grace and mercy. And when they see that change, that we would pray that they would notice it and that they would come and seek the same Savior that's brought that change in all of us. And I want to end this morning with just one simple quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones who said, Revival above everything else is a glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is the restoration of Him to the center of the life of the church. You find this warm devotion, personal devotion to Him. And if we're lacking that today or we've never had it, we must seek it out fervently. Let's pray this morning.